Hello, everybody, and welcome to the first ever episode of the official Avenged Sevenfold podcast. It's called Tracks. It is powered by Death Bats Club, and I am your host, Bees. I should point out regularly there will be two other co-hosts with me, Miss Courtney Earhart, who is, of course, project manager for all things Death Bats Club. If you are in the Death Bats Club Discord, which is going to be a big part of what I talk about in this intro, you will know her as 21. I'm also going to be joined by Kieran Heafy, who is the biggest super fan of any band I've ever met in my entire life, who's going to be delivering song stats and knowledge beyond any of us. He knows who played Bong goes on track three and all of that kind of stuff and he'll be with you as well from next month i should probably tell you what this show is as well right so tracks is the first time any band has ever done this idea officially every month we are going to be covering a different song by Avenged Sevenfold with the band telling you stories that they assure me have never been told anywhere before. This is the place to go in depth on Avenged Sevenfold like never before. So make sure you're subscribed and as well, if we were just covering the song, right? This is how the song was recorded. This is what's good about it by every month it would be a very short and boring podcast but that is not the case every single month we're going to take you in some really cool directions this month we are covering the song welcome to the family from the album nightmare and welcome to the family is about more than just the song you will hear about the song and some amazing stories about it but we're also going to take you back to the guys childhoods we're going to tell you about their school life we're going to talk about the earliest days of how Ven sevenfold got together There are some amazing, hilarious stories in there and honestly, some of the world's best Jimmy the Rev Sullivan stories that you will hear anywhere. So please make sure you're subscribing and make sure you are on this journey with us. Death Bats Club holders, we have our poker nights, movie nights, giveaways and way more fun activities going on in the Death Bats Club Discord. Make sure you are there. Version one of our new website, eventsenfold.io, has now launched launched where you can connect your wallet and browse the gallery of 10,000 death bats and there are more updates being worked on as we speak so only a little bit more from me and then we're going to bring in the band this is really exciting though so this month we're covering welcome to the family and not only are we covering the song you can get a limited edition shirt this shirt is only going to be available for a couple of weeks at a7xworld.com and it is the official welcome to the family t-shirt we're going to be dropping a different t-shirt every single month that is in correspondence with the song and this month the artist doing it because we are supporting nft artists as well independent artists being given a real case to showcase that work their work so shout out avenged for backing that as well the guy who's done the welcome to the family design mike g check him out mike v-g.com that's mike v-g.com to check out mike g's work uh shout out i think his name's oliver ouch sorry if i've got that wrong so um but oliver ouch is the character that mike uses that's on the t-shirt and that's not all death bats club holders a one of one nft is going to be airdropped to one of you for free you heard that right for free one of you is going to be given the official artwork to welcome to the family as a one-of-one nft if you want to keep it 
great. You've got that artwork for that song forever if you want it. If you want to flip it, you can flip it too. So someone out there, keep an eye out. If Welcome to the Family is your favourite Event Sevenfold song, you might be able to get your grubby little mitts on the official one-of-one one NFT artwork for Welcome to the Family. Going to be airdropped every single month as well. So shout out Mike G. Shout out whoever that winner is. Usually we're going to airdrop it on the day the episode goes out, but keep an eye on the Discord and we'll let you know who won that. And uh, I think that's about it from me. So what you're about to hear is, in my opinion, the best official podcast put out by any artist in music. It's a really original idea. My sincerest thanks to the band for being so cool in the interview process. Um, you're about to hear something special. So without any more waffle from me, I've been your host, Bees. TerryBees666 is the place to follow me if you want to follow me on Instagram or any of that good stuff. But that's enough bullshit from me. Welcome. To the family. Episode one tracks the official event sevenfold podcast powered by Death Bats Club gets underway right now. What's up, everybody? I am Johnny Christ. I play bass for the band Avenged Sevenfold, and sometimes I'm known as the comic relief. Growing up here was really great because there's a lot of a lot of small town vibes to it. You know, in the sense that you only have about two degrees of separation between a couple of friends and you know everybody um, who's been here most of, the, most of their lives. I grew up in three different really good neighborhoods in Huntington Beach. And, um, you know, they had their share of problems just like anywhere else. But overall, I'm not going to sit here and paint a picture that we weren't uh, able to survive or anything like that. But, you know, we lived in, it was me and two older brothers. Um, I remember when we were living off of uh, Beach Boulevard and, it was the three of us sharing a room, um, and my parents had the other one. We were in a two-bedroom apartment. Nothing wrong with that, obviously, but it's not like we each had our own room. I didn't have the uh, the cookie-cutter sitcom family life of every kid having their own bathroom and, and uh, bedroom. You know, that was, that was not how I was raised. But we listened to a lot of music, watched a lot of wrestling and movies. It was pretty typical, you know? Had birthdays and got excited for presents just like everybody else, and... My dad would take me to uh, local wrestling WWF events at the time over over when it was uh, the Arrowhead Pond of Anaheim. So my first concert um, my grandfather took me to was a Metallica on the load tour at the Great Western Forum with Korn opening up for them. I think I just turned 12 years old at the time or I might have still been 11. As I said, wrestling was really big in our household. I remember like my dad was a huge fan. So uh, growing up, we it was it was on... Every every weekend, we were watching together and wrestling in the living room. And both my older brothers got me into some heavier music. My middle brother Matt um, was the one who introduced me to uh, bands like No Effects and Rancid and Lagwagon. We used to go into our Astro van and drive around and listen to uh, Metallica, Megadeth, AC/DC, Jimi Hendrix. These were all the picks from my dad. But then when I get in the car with my mom, it's Michael Jackson, the Bengals, just anything from any anything that you could think of that was on the 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 top 100 in the late 80s was playing in my mom's car. She was an aerobics teacher. I often found myself when I was uh, unable to stay in daycare because I might have had the had a sniffly nose or something like that. I sit in the corner of the aerobics room and 
dance away in front of the mirror while all the ladies behind me giggled. It was real, it was a lot of fun. We had a, a, a great hot spot of different genres of music, I would say, going through this town. Um, and what's really interesting about that is I just assumed every city was like that. I just kind of was like, oh, yeah, like everybody knows who No Effects and Rancid and Bad Religion and Pennywise are. They're, they got to be on all the radio stations across the country. I didn't find out until I got older that, no, that was just K-Rock. Most of our childhood would have been through the 90s, I would say, uh, late 80s, early 90s. And that time in Huntington would it was all about the U.S. Open, the, the surf competition that has now become huge. Again, all those things were happening when I was, you know, 12, 13 years old around here. And because of the vibe around here, you didn't feel like it was like this big thing. It was just like, oh, okay, that's cool. That's happening. You know, and, and everyone just, no one felt pretentious about it. No one started to go like, oh, Huntington's this really cool, fancy place. We've always been the the more laid back beach, I would say, of Orange County. We very much are hometown heroes when you look at it. You know, we all grew up and created the band here, started everything from our garages right here in Huntington Beach, uh, went on to do what we've done over the last 20 plus years. Everyone here is just, they're, again, there's, it's, it's, it's a cool vibe to it. No one's like up in your face. You don't have to be in L.A., you know, with the, a bunch of cameras everywhere constantly or anything like that. Like everyone just... Everyone respects everyone's space while at the same time knowing what that space is. I'm Zachy Vengeance. I play guitar for Venge Sevenfold, and people probably don't know that I'm definitely the second best guitarist in Avenge Sevenfold, contrary to popular belief. Huntington Beach, it's a place that's filled with all sorts of people, all walks of life. You got fancy people with money driving around in nice cars, you got homeless people that have been far less fortunate. You got surfers, punk rockers, skaters, you know, junkies. It's, it's got everything. And, you know, it's our home. It's where we grew up. It really inspires everything about us. And uh, when I moved here, when I was young, it was an absolute dream come true because I came from, you know, the inner city. It was pretty, pretty tough where I came, came from. You know, within a week of moving here, uh, I got a knock on my door from some kid named Nick that was living down the street. Uh, his uncle was a drummer in Pennywise, is the drummer in Pennywise. And he knocked on my door because he heard me playing guitar through the window and wanted me to check out his band. And uh, he was the drummer for Matt's band. I loved music. And when I moved here and I got that knock on my door and I listened to his band, which was Matt's first punk rock band, I couldn't believe it. I mean, we're... 13, 14 years old, and I'm listening to demos uh, that sound like full-grown men playing real music. And where I was from, you know, that was unheard of. You know, looking back on it, I was very, very lucky, very close with my family, two wonderful parents uh, that are still around, always surrounded by love and support from my family, which is really an amazing thing. But we were also pretty poor at that time. And, and you, you don't really know it and you kind of know it when you're young. And looking back on it, it was like when it would rain in our house, we would get every bucket and cup and we'd have like 100 leaks coming from the roof and we'd all be putting them down to like try and stop the convergence of water on the floor. And we had a broken 13-inch 
black and white TV that was sitting on not a TV stand, but another broken 13 inch TV. And I just thought that was normal, you know, like we didn't have a lot, but my parents always tried their very best. And when I got my first guitar, I'm sure it was probably tough to pay some bills that month. My mom is one of the sweetest women in the world, but she's a feisty. She really can be feisty. And when I was a kid growing up for about almost three years, I grew up in Cairo, Egypt and you know, I was three, four years old and I got really sick, really, really sick. Well, we didn't have a car in Cairo. You know, my dad's worked for a company that was building something over there and he was at work. It was late at night and I'm very ill. So we get into a taxi and uh, my mom says, you take us to the hospital. You know, my son's very sick and the driver drives away and starts saying that he's going to take me to uh, his brother's house. My mom says, no, no, no you got to take me to the hospital. My son's very sick. He's all, I'm taking my brother. He'll help. And he starts driving the opposite direction of the hospital. And I remember this because this is something, this is no different than my mom would be today, you know, in her sixties. She's never changed a bit. And she says, she reaches in her purse and she says, listen, you motherfucker, I have a gun. And she points her purse. I have a fucking gun in my purse. And I swear to God, I will blow your fucking head off right the fuck now if you don't take me to the fucking hospital. And I'm sitting there like holding in a fucking puke. And my mom is fucking holding up her purse like a fucking bandit. And, you know, I I guess I got a little bit of that from my mom too because I'm pretty mild-mannered. But when it comes to being passionate about shit and trying to get stuff done, that's, you know, I could definitely come to life. So in the the meantime, you know, my my dad's extremely mild-mannered. The guys are right. The world of music in Southern California at the turn of the millennium, like in the late 90s and into the 2000s, was popping in so many ways. There was new metal, pop punk, the hardcore scene, Scar, a burgeoning metalcore scene that Avenged Sevenfold would not only define, but they would transcend. Welcome to the family. But in Huntington Beach, something else was brewing. The competition amongst local bands was fierce and there was no competitors like the young and determined members of Avenged Sevenfold. So, with two members down, two to go and a whackerman waiting in the wings, it's time to get to know Shadows and Sin and believe me when I tell you, you're about to hear some of the best Jimmy the Rev Sullivan stories you will ever hear in this lifetime. Take it away, Matt. You can't win this fight. Hey, this is M Shadows from Avenge Sevenfold, and Bees made me do this. Larry lost him too early. Welcome to the family. Huntington is kind of like the stepchild of all these really nice beach cities. And when you look at like Newport and Laguna Beach and uh, Long Beach were vastly different than both of them. But really, you know, there there is a nuanced thing. And I think Southern California is a perfect breeding ground. You you just have a little bit of everything. You know, the weather's always nice. We're always playing sports. We grow up in this environment. But there's also this underbelly of music. And, and I hate to say hate, but it's like so much anger and so much like youth rebellion. It was just so weird thinking back on it because I don't see that now, right? I walk downtown, I, don't, I just don't see it. I grew up... Um, being heavily involved in sports and probably pushed a little too hard at it. You know, my sister went on to play in the WNBA. So it's like, there it's a basketball family and there was a lot of work being put into basketball. My dad was very much into music, but I actually fell in love with music and fell in love with punk rock. And I would, 
you know, the punk rock was emerging at the time to this mainstream audience and it was just disgusting to them. And I loved that. You know, there was a lot of press on the, the news you would watch punk rock, this punk rock, that this happens at a punk rock show. Guttermouth does this, this band does that. And it was like this crazy thing. And, and I just wanted to be involved in it. And I knew that I really couldn't do both because my, my jock friends didn't understand it. And my music friends would make fun of me for playing sports. It was so weird. Right. And like nowadays, like you, you get old enough to where you don't care what anyone says, but at the time you do. And I, decided to stop playing basketball and focus fully on going to shows, uh, passing out demos, starting bands, playing, getting spit on, <laughs> you know, like I, I, I just fully went into it. And so my life growing up was, I had these loving parents that just simply didn't understand it. Right. So it was very tumultuous, kept leaving the house and living at friends' houses or I'd run away cause I wasn't going to listen. I was getting tattooed at 14. All the while my parents were just like, if you just, go to school and do this. You can live here. But if you do this, this, and this, you can't. And I was just not having it. I was just going to live. I remember that Rev was living in his car. He was living in the park. And so you had this situation that it was very strenuous, even though it didn't have to be, but because we were just so hard headed in our belief that we were just going to do what we wanted to do. And so, you know, by the time that we kind of made amends and we were kind of starting Avenged, the parent situation to come around to where they said, okay, you guys can just rehearse in the garage, just do what you want with it. But please just don't kill anybody or, or get killed or whatever, you know? Jimmy was so loud and so obnoxious and he was always the talk of the parents, right? Like, oh, it's that guy. Like, don't ever hang out with that kid. I remember I was sitting, picking up my sister from her um, lower school when, we, when I was in middle school and Jimmy was up in a tree and everybody, all the principals and teachers were yelling at him to get down and he was just making noises at them. He wasn't even speaking English. He was just making noises, mocking them all. And it was a perfect example of my mom saying, you will never hang out with that kid. Now, when we got into basketball camp together at Ocean View, one day I was supposed to just walk home and, you know, back and forth, ride my bike to camp and back. It was like right across the street. We end up leaving that day and he goes, hey, can you give me a ride home on your handlebars? And I said, sure. I knew where he lived. He, he was a legend, right? And, but I was, I knew I shouldn't be hanging out with him. So we're riding home and it happened to be trash day. So all the trash cans are out front and he just starts kicking over every trash can on the way home, all the trash into the street, like every house. And I drop him off at home and I was like, dude, that was like such a rush. It was so cool. Like people are chasing us or they're fucking pissed. They're yelling and we're just riding faster and faster. So he says, come back over in like a couple hours. So I don't tell my mom where I'm going. And I go back over to Jimmy's house and we go do the next neighborhood. And so then it spawned this friendship of just misbehavior and fun and just craziness. Yo, what's up? I am Sinister Gates of Avenge Sevenfold and NFTs are a scam. I definitely come from a musical family. A lot of, a lot of music um, on my dad's side of the family. Although my mom can't ever stop her from singing and dancing. She sings perfectly in tune, has a great voice, and but not musical on that side, um, aside from, you know, talent, having it genetically. But yeah, my cousins are, are great musicians, jazz musicians, accomplished jazz musicians. And a lot of music comes from my grandmother's side, jazz musicians that, that toured with, you know, big bands, Glenn Miller Band, all that kind of shit like that. So a lot of, a lot of history, especially in jazz. And then my uncle, my dad's oldest brother, got turned on to rock and roll. And that's when they went, they went through the Stones, Beatles, Zeppelin, and, and all that kind of shit, which is where my, uh, I, I would say, that, that's kind of my upbringing, is more of the classic rock upbringing. 
So I'm a child of divorce, and thank God I am. I have wonderful step-parents, a beautiful half-sister, um, and that I all consider my mothers, my fathers, my sisters, my brothers, and all this shit. But uh, my stepfather moved us to Huntington Beach, and I grew up surfing. My stepdad fit right in and continued to take us surfing, moved us to Huntington Beach, found surfers. Um, the first drummer I found was uh, five houses down or whatever. His name was Jason Wallace, and I heard drums, like good drums coming out of this two-story house. And I was just like, holy fuck. So I just skateboard by that house all day and all night. And I'm a pretty shy kid by nature, and but I couldn't help myself. I was compelled to say, I play guitar, can we jam? But we never wrote anything. We just kind of played Zeppelin tunes and did did whatever. It wasn't until I met Jimmy um, during that year in, in middle school when we started school. I met Jason during the summer, started school, met Jimmy within the first two weeks of school in, uh, what the fuck was it? Woodshop. We got into a fight. We were turning in these projects or whatever. Um, I had been avoiding him for two weeks. He was, he was a fucking class terrorist. The only class I had with him, scared everybody to death, picked on everybody. But he wasn't, you know, he, he wasn't malevolent. He was just trying to have fun. And it was just intimidating for a lot of us shyer kids. Anyway, he was in front of me in, in, in uh, line and he just turned around and just must have sensed me and my fear. <laughs> and he's, what the fuck did you make? And poked at me or something like that. And I just, I went blind red and I hit him. I hit him in the chest. I was scared. Obviously, if I if I wasn't, I would have hit him in the face. We got sent outside and we just started talking and hit it off right away. I think for two seconds, I poked a little fun at him. Like, oh, you play drums, huh? Family of musicians. I'm fucking egotistical maniac at fucking you know, 13 years old, right? Uh, and he just could wax poetic on same musicians that I was into, same music and stuff, and then certain things that I wasn't uh, privy to. And, and we went home that day, jammed on my brother's drum set, and I was blown away. And my dad's quoted as saying this as well, that he had the same amount of chops that he did the day that he died from the day that my dad met him. The only thing that changed was polishing. Kid could absolutely fucking play anything. It was... It was pretty incredible. But you can't win this fight. We continue on our journey welcoming not only the band, but you to our family because this Avenged Sevenfold story is big, right? Over the course of this entire project and covering all of these songs, we have got a big journey to go on. And so we are going to welcome all kinds of special guests onto this show. Please do use the tab in the Death Bats Club Discord about the podcast to let us know the kind of guests that you would want to hear in the future. But now we welcome a man with an impeccable musical background, a man that can play any style you throw at him and mix a mean margarita. I have absolutely no idea if that's true, but it sounds cool, doesn't it? He is the man with the sticks and tricks for any guitar licks. It's the one and only Brooks Wackerman. Hey, this is Brooks Wackerman, and I play drums in Avenged Sevenfold, and I am 100% man. I grew up in Seal Beach. It's a very small, quaint town. You don't need a car to get around. And then I uh, moved to Long Beach uh, once I met my wife. But yeah, Seal Beach uh, is my stomping grounds. I flew out of my mom's womb with uh, drumsticks in my hands, uh, according to my uh, brothers and my father. I come from a, a very musical family. My dad's been a music educator for over 60 years. 
all my brothers are professional musicians. Um, my brother Chad played with Zappa for 10 years. Uh, my brother John has played with Lindsey Buckingham and Bunny Burnell, uh, so like fusion um, acts. And then my other brother Bob is like a session musician. So music was always around. Um, I just th thought it was natural for families to have as much music in their household as, as we did. My earliest memories of, of music was having a drum set set up in the garage all times and just going in there whenever I um, was inspired. Uh, and then I started taking lessons, I want to say around six or seven, um, started privately for like five years and then started playing in bands and then it just went on from there. So I, I attribute what I do now to, uh, to my parents and brothers. Life at Home for Young Brooks consisted of two things. I'd say 85% music because I, I, you know, if I wasn't playing gigs, I would just practice all the time. And I only had a couple friends, but never went to, you know, many events or parties. And then the other 15% was doing karate. I got really into karate and Bruce Lee was one of my heroes. So my dad got me into um, the like the local recreation karate organization here. So I did that for like five years and would go, I went to nationals and like won the bronze and, and sparring. So I got really into it, but then actually let's get the percentage right. I'd say 10% during that time was also skateboarding. So karate, drums, skateboarding, and I had to stop skateboarding, unfortunately, because I, I was getting hurt. So if I got hurt or, you know, fractured my, my wrists, I couldn't play drums. And so I was so into playing in my band, I had to omit skateboarding. It was difficult trying to find guys that were into what I was into. I, and it kind of ran the gamut in styles. I, I was into everything from Mr. Bungle to um, Van Halen to Prince. So, and I think that's why the guys in Avenge and myself get along so well, because we, we grew up listening to the same bands and artists. So in junior high, I remember being really frustrated because there was only one guitar player there that I uh, could jam with. And his name was actually Dryden Vera. And he, he started a band called Alien Ant Farm later on. So technically he was the first guy that I used to jam with. And then I went to something called the NAM show out here. It's a huge music convention that happens every year in Anaheim. And I met a guitar player named Thomas McRocklin who was signed to Interscope Records and Steve Vai was producing his album. And so he was playing at the Ibanez booth. I was there with my father and we were just like in awe of how amazing this guy was. He was just shredding a million miles a minute, but playing musically at age 12. So his dad came up to me and said, hey, you look like a musician. And I said, yeah, I'm a drummer. And I was, I think, like 13 at the time. And he said, well, we should get together because we're trying to find a drummer. Um, and we did. And I was signed to Interscope at 13. 
and release my first record. So I got I got a head start into the business and was fortunate enough to play and work with guys like Steve Vai at that age. And then from there, it just kind of took off playing with, you know, infectious grooves, suicidal tendencies and the vandals. So it's kind of an early bloomer. With Brooks Wackerman in bloom just a short distance away and with you now being clued up about the early lives of the young monsters that make up Avenged Sevenfold, it's time to continue this bumper debut episode. You're welcome, by the way. Make sure you're subscribing because it helps the band and all of us behind the scenes. Anyway, it's time to continue this bumper debut episode by learning about the earliest days of the band and the OC scene that shaped them. Straight up legendary shit. When I got that knock on my door from uh, Nick DiBiase, who was the drummer in Matt's band, Successful Failure, he said, hey, you, you come to our band practice. I was like, sure, you know? So we either jumped on our skateboards or rode our bikes, and we went to Matt's house. Me and Zach wanted to start the band. Um, we felt we could make something that was, we were falling in love with hardcore at the time, H2O, Sick of It All, um, VOD, Poison the Well, all those, 18 Visions were at our school, you know, James Hart and those guys were at our school, Brandon Chapetti and bleeding through. And, um, there was all these bands that were just, we all went to school together and we had guitar class together and I was a, a freshman and they were older, um, seniors. And so I wanted to play hardcore, but I still wanted to play punk rock. So we started, started talking to Zach, who was in a, another band as well called MPA at the time. And we wanted to start something a little heavier. Um, and so then we had to go convince Jimmy to play with us because he was playing with older people at the time. Cause he was so much further ahead in his instrument than we were. We convinced him uh, to play with us, but he didn't take it very seriously. And so the first practice was me, Jimmy, and Zach in my living room. And that was our first practice. And I had written a song called Thick and Thin. And it was in the Sound of the Seventh Trumpet record. It was the first song I had written for this band. And it was very hardcore uh, youth of today, you know, like uh, brotherhood you know, stick together, unity. And it, it made it on the record eventually, you know, it was our fir the first songs we ever made. And that was our first practice. They had a two-car separated garage and they let him take over one of the garages and put up a bunch of punk rock posters and set up drums and a PA that he had stolen from somewhere that I can't, I can't say where, I guess the statute of limitations is probably up, but, uh, he'd, uh, stolen a PA system from somewhere close by and set it up. So I go in there, you know, I'm nervous, you know, when we're 14, I mean, Matt's already like six foot, you know, piercings, fucking dude probably had forearm tattoos at 14. I'm not even fucking around. Like, and I'm a kid who had just moved from Washington. You know, I grew up in Downey, California, but then I moved to Washington for a year, which things were kind of weird. A lot of jocks and preppy people. So I was kind of an outcast. Came back to California a few days before I started my freshman year in high school. And I'm in this punk rock fucking haven garage with a bunch of equipment and fucking dude has a fucking half stack. I've never seen that, you know, where I come from, kids don't have half stacks, fucking PA systems, drummers that can play. And they close the garage door and I'm looking around like, holy shit, this is it. This is fucking what a band does. And 
they start playing. I think Mao's singing like Dear Lover from Social Distortion and then he played like a Bad Religion song and he fucking literally sounded 100% like Mike Ness and fucking Greg Graffin and um, and he's 14 years old and I'm thinking, holy shit, this is the fucking best thing I've ever heard because, you know, kids fucking sound like wieners. They got a drummer that's playing in time and they have a fucking half stack cranked up to 10 and I'm just sitting there thinking, this is fucking it. Like... Just knowing these guys, I just hit the fucking, hit the jackpot. While Zaki is way fucking right about hitting the jackpot, and it's great to hear those stories about the young Avenged Sevenfold, I can't just let that go. Rewind, hold the phone for a second. You are telling me that the young M Shadows had tattoos at the age of 14. I don't mean to sound like whoop, whoop, that's a sound of the police, but really? Can we clarify that with the man himself? My first tattoo was an H2O tattoo. Um, I loved H2O, and it's a band that this guy Nate Buchler and a bunch of the hardcore kids at Huntington High School introduced me to, and I just loved the message. I loved everything about it. So I got an H2O tattoo, and then the addiction started. I started getting stuff all over my legs because I could hide it, right? I could. Um, I wasn't playing basketball anymore, so I could wear pants everywhere and just hide this. And then one of the moments when I got kicked out of the house and was living at a friend's house. I went and got tattooed on my forearm. And I was like, I don't care anymore. It's time for it to come out. You know, like whatever. Blah, blah. And then my dad calls me and goes like, okay, we're ready to have you back in the house. Like, let's just make it better. And I'm thinking, oh shit. Now I'm going to walk home with this freaking huge true till death tattoo on my forearm. And so of course I walked home with a long sleeve shirt on for like a few days until finally they're like, you know, I heard you've got tattoos all over your legs. And then because someone had told them, like a parent had heard. I was like, yeah, you know, I got these. And they're like, as long as you don't get any on your arms. And I already had this thing. It was already like healed, right? I've been hiding it. And then I show them that. And they're like, uh, how about never on your neck? And I'm like, I can't make any promises. Sorry. But yeah. So the tattoos were definitely like a, a, a strange thing. But you know what's so funny? It's like, all you have to do is get some tattoos and then prove everyone wrong. That tattoos just, they don't mean anything. It's, it is what it is, right? And, and society was changing. And to me, we were on the maybe on the cutting edge of this new world where you, it didn't matter. But that's very hard for parents to see, especially from their upbringing. Proving people wrong since day one. That is the Avenged Sevenfold way. And this is the official Avenged Sevenfold podcast. It is called Tracks. It's presented by myself, Bees. It's lovely to be here with you. And most importantly, it is powered by Death Bats Club. Let's go and join the young Sinister Gates and Jimmy the Rev Sullivan, who are doing a little hefty dance with Nosferatu as they begin to hone their craft and make their way on their journey to all things sevenfold. Jimmy brought me what is Pinkly Smooth. I mean, there's a couple of songs that I wrote that I'm very proud of that are on the EP and stuff. I, for, for the most part, I can't take credit for that. I was just very lucky to be brought a very exotic, wild, avant-garde style of music in which I could apply my studio musician mentality too. A crazy amount of techniques and and dissonance and, and weird behaviors because we listen to the same music, you know? I introduced him to Sparks. Uh, he introduced me to Mr. Bungle. We both grew up listening to Danny Elfman. We had all these different things, you know? He introduced me to Primus. He knew of Frank Zappa, of course, but I listened, I don't think he listened to as much Frank Zappa as maybe I did, but I'd play with Frank Zappa. So we had all this avant-garde upbringing 
that we shared and exchanged with each other. And Jimmy started playing this shit on the piano um, with heavy Danny Elfman influence, which I was obsessed with at the time. Um, but I didn't want to play original music. I just didn't think I was capable of it, nor did I even consider it have any interest. I was in school to follow my dad's footsteps um, in, in studio music. So when he brought this to me, I had no clue he was playing piano at this level. I had moved back in with my dad for the last couple of years to bang women and sell drugs uh, successfully. <laughs> that was uh, those two years. At the end of my high school, I was expelled from school, um, did a whole bunch of horrible shit. And because I, I, once I got my license, I'm like, when I go to music college, when I go to GIT, that's when I'll get my shit together. But I'm fucking, I didn't pick up a guitar for two years. I, of course, I could have worked and bettered my crap, but I didn't. And Jimmy came to me with this incredible, he was woodshedding, playing incredible music, writing incredible music. But I had no interest because he wasn't singing. I knew he had a great voice. He would scream and do Pantera, Michael Jackson. To me, I always knew it consisted or constituted a great song. It wasn't even necessarily great harmony. Although if you could bring advanced harmony to something like that and a brilliant melody, you have Steely Dan. But it didn't matter the chords. It was all about the melody. Who out there is capable of writing a magical melody? And I didn't think that I was. He brought piano music. Great, cool, but I'm not interested in that because I'm not hearing magical melodies. And I told him that up front. I was like, if you want to do this shit, like who's singing? What's happening? Well, I don't know. I play the drums, but who's going to play the... He had no concept. He just wanted me to write guitar for this. And I was happy to do so. He would sit there for hours as I wrote the parts and wrote them down in practice for music school. That very night, he went home and wrote the melody um, one of my favorite melodies of all time for the bridge that I was really into. I wrote this funk thing for in the bridge of Mesmer. Ding, 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 ding. I wrote this crazy, goofy, what I thought was infectious, groovy style, you know, rhythm part. And then he came back with searching for some better things to occupy my time. And I wish that they were blind. So I sat down a good friend of mine. I sought down or I sat down a good soul of mine and saw fit to pull the wine. He had the lyrics too. And they were like, I'm getting goosebumps thinking about it. Fascinating lyrics, the most brilliant melody I'd ever heard. I quit everything. I was following this fucking genius into whatever Bolivian he wanted to fucking lead me into. I wanted to be with Jimmy. Wherever he was at, I mean, there wasn't a time where we didn't just talk shop at all times. We were booking shows. We were talking about who we were you know, who we wanted to manage us and where we we're going to go, what we we're going to do. It was just nonstop. And then I guess behind the scenes, Matt bugging is maybe Jimmy used that word, but they wanted a drummer. And like Matt was very ambitious. And the great thing about Matt is he, for as competitive as he is, and he's an alpha male, competitive, crazy bastard. He wants what's best for the band at all times. From what I understand, Matt had asked him a few times, Jimmy was not interested. So pursuant to a point where Jimmy's like, fine. I'm like, okay, well, that's that's totally cool. Play, play in the band because it, it didn't do anything to Pinkly Smooth. We were still whatever. But Matt was now hanging out with Jimmy and I, I guess, a little bit more and kind of vice versa instead of 
instead of maybe every other weekend, we were hanging out kind of all the time. And my girlfriend at the time and Jimmy had an apartment in Long Beach. So that's where we just went and partied every single night. As it would turn out, partying wasn't the only thing that was proving to be quite hard. Nope, that's not where I was going to take that. Get that thought out of your mind, you filthy buggers. What I was actually going to say was that what was proving quite difficult, and you wouldn't expect this necessarily, was once the decision was made to bring in another guitar player, convincing Sinister Gates was something that was uh, quite the task. Isn't that right, Zachy? We were recording on day one of Sounding the Seventh Trumpet, and Jimmy invited Sin to come by the studio, which was West Beach um, in Hollywood, like, you know, a real studio that recorded, you know, all of our favorite punk albums, Bad Religion, No Effects, Offspring, Pennywise, I mean, you name it. And Jimmy wanted Brian to see what we were doing. And Brian shows up smoking uh, filterless Chesterfields. And he's like, hey, you want one? So we were just sitting there, you know, shooting the shit outside, smoking fucking cigarettes. And I'm sitting there thinking I'm probably going to fucking die within minutes of smoking this fucking thing. But, you know, we just, we all just hit it off. You know, all the stories of how we all met were were pretty much perfect, I think. We basically wrote this record, and, and, the, and the Rev, I don't think he took the band that seriously at the time, right? And and me and Zach were taking it seriously. Every day we were writing songs and um, guitar class and whatever. But when we actually started recording the record, Brian, because he was such good friends with Jimmy, he would come down to the studio and hang out with us. And they, you know, at the time they still had Pinkly Smooth, which was another band that they were doing um, that was much more advanced than what we were doing at the time. Um, but I don't think it fit into any scene, which I think greatly helped us, right? So once we started recording the record, I think Brian kept coming and going like, wow, this is actually, there's actually some really cool stuff on here. Like it's not as lame as I thought it was, right? And I remember going to an AFI show in San Diego with Zachy. Um, maybe during the recording process or whatever. And I said, Zach, I think we could benefit from two guitar players. Like maybe we asked Brian, he seems to be kind of open to it. Maybe we should do it. And he agreed that we should. And so when we actually turned in the record to good life, and this is where it gets very weird. We turned in the record to good life and they said, we think this is such a great record. Would you mind putting it out an EP before we release the record to kind of get people warmed up to what your sound is? And so we chose four songs from the record and then Brian decided to join the band in that, interim period and we decided to re-record to end the rapture with him doing a solo that was like his that's why all the timing's weird like why did he play on that but not on the record well the record was already recorded and so then after we did that and then we released the record we asked brian to be a member of the band and that's how it happened. It was a very weird thing where I don't think he trusted that the music was good. Then he liked it and he said, fine, I'll do it with an eye roll. Val, not just my sister-in-law, but my sister in this life and beyond, twin sister to my wife, Michelle, talked Matt into and, and maybe conspired with Jimmy to bring me into the band. And that's kind of how that happened. And I, I didn't have any interest um, other than be a cool hang, right? Because Jimmy was now taking a small amount of time to go play with Avenge. If I could do that too, it could be hanging out and I'd bring whiskey to the fucking thing and quickly realized it was a tighter ship there and I, and I was fine with it. But that's how it all began. And then, you know, Matt sat me down one day and I'm fucking just said, you know, I hear you're 
you know, you're starting to write a lot more for Pinkly Smooth and Jimmy's really, really stoked on your material, which I knew Jimmy respected me, but I, like, we didn't have to compliment each other. So we never really did, but we, it's not like we didn't or held back, but I never talked to him about my songwriting, but felt very inadequate, certainly compared to him. But that was an amazing compliment. It was a twofold compliment where this dude wanted me to start writing for his band based on the compliments he received from the guy who started my favorite band of all time, Pinkly Smooth. There wasn't a better feeling on earth, maybe having kids, maybe getting married or something like that. Matt kind of just took over then. And then I spent a lot more time writing with Matt. And then it was the slow death of, of Pinkly Smooth, you know, and I had this investment in Avenged Sevenfold now, and I wanted to write there. Last but certainly not least, in any company anywhere, we have to bring Johnny Christ into the fold. Of course, four down, one to go. So when it comes to Johnny, there is something of an urban legend when it comes to how he came to be in Avenged Sevenfold. The story goes that he was very keen to point out to the other members of Avenged Sevenfold that their bass player was maybe not Johnny Christ levels of bass player. I didn't even know my voice could go that high. I'm sure it wasn't as insidious as that because Johnny Christ is one of the world's greatest humans. Let's find out about it. My perspective on that legend right there is... Maybe I felt that way, but I don't remember actually saying that. I don't think I ever actually said that uh, your bass players are trash or anything like that. The last bass player before I joined, um, I did know him from a local, like a local band that had played at my high school. Some of the members were members of my high school. It was a ska band. I was friends with a few of the guys, um, and I, I saw him, and he he was playing, played fine, and. But he just did a couple of moves. I was like, that's the guy that's in Avenged Sevenfold, huh? And uh, I did report that to them. You know, I mean, I, I, I'd become friendly with them. And I was like, they were asking about him. I was like, yeah, I saw him at, at this, you know, he played at the, what do you call that? Like the lunch auditorium at my high school. And, uh, and I was like, yeah, he licked a pick and smacked it on his forehead like it was a, a rock star move. And everyone had a good laugh because apparently at the time they they were already... They already had one foot out the door. Let's put it that way at that time. We were friends with his older brother and he went to school with the Rev and uh, Sin um, at Ocean View High School. And at the time, you know, we, you got to think we, we lived in like suburban Southern California. So that down the street was this kid, Ryan Alonzo, who always had Johnny at his house and we would practice in the garage and you could hear it. And so Johnny would walk down the street and he'd come hang out. And because he was younger brothers with our friend, Matt Seward, uh, Jimmy would just kind of jam with him. And like, it wasn't even on our radar, like this guy's a serious contender. But after going through multiple lineup changes of different things happening, we were in the middle of a tour and we just said, why don't we call Johnny? We know he can play. And that ended up being how we got him. So I don't, I don't think he was ever angling for anything. I think he just happened to be right place, right time. Truth be told, when I joined the band, I had a lot of work to do myself. I mean, you think you're a good musician, to be honest, when you're playing by yourself or even just playing in a garage with other people. But when you step into the ring, so to speak, of being on stage in front of people surrounded by a cream of the garage crop of uh, Huntington Beach around you, 
it's a different it's a different level, you know. And uh, that took me a second to learn, to be honest. So it's not like I would come in there, you know, swinging swinging some some big things or anything like that. You know, it's just uh, I don't believe I ever I ever badmouthed him. Now I'm not saying that, you know this is 20 plus years ago. I don't think I ever badmouthed him. I, I definitely I had my opinions. So let's put it that way. Okay, now that we've done the right and honourable thing by clearing Mr. Johnny Christ's name, it's time to introduce a segment that's going to be part of every single episode of this here podcast. This is Tracks, the official Avenged Sevenfold podcast. Please make sure you're subscribed because you do not want to miss a single episode of this podcast. As I say, this is going to happen every single time. We are going to talk to Sinister Gates about the musicality of the song that is this month's subject. And what I want to know is, what do you want from this segment? It's going to be myself talking to Sin every month when we do this show. What do you want to know about? Do you want to know about the key of the song? Do you want to know about the tones used? Do you want to know about the studio equipment? Do you want to know what was specific to the recording of that song? Please do use the podcast tab in the Death Bats Club Discord. Let me know what you want from this show. Don't forget, our show is your show. So, here is Mr Sinister Gates with our first musical conversation about the song Welcome to the Family. The riff is incredible. It's new metal riff. So technically what it is... Tuning on this song? I think it's D flat. Got it's it. It's drop D, but everything's down a half step. Um, but off the top of my... What I love about Jimmy's writing there is he's got this natural, what's called an enclosure. So it's... That's the sharp five. Or the flat... It's actually the flat six. So it starts in Aeolian, which is your natural minor. So it's a very natural minor thing. Is very new metal. But then he adds a the flat five. So the reason I call it a sharp five instead of flat six, because you want to think about it around the five. And sharp five, five, flat five, five. So you have this enclosure around the five, which is blues, the flat five. It can also be this Danny Elfman goblin-y sort of thing. And Jimmy loved Wheatleys. And he would call them Wheatleys. And he always wanted me to help him with his riffs to do Wheatleys. And I just thought that was the cheesiest thing to do. Because the riff was so fucking good, you didn't have to do it. But when I heard it with the drums, I was sold on that right away. Hey, is there something missing? Only time will alter your vision. Never in question, lethal injection. Welcome to the family. And then it went into the chorus. And that's, it's a little sugary. Couldn't we kept with the like heavier new metal sort of element to it, maybe. But I'm glad it is where it is because it's just, it's soaring, right? The, the, it's a, it's a Those harmonies in the chorus. Brilliant harmonies, brilliant this. And, and it's a great chorus. And I always thought it was a great chorus. I just thought it was maybe part of a different song. <laughs> um, that this day, fast forward to yeah. old fucking man. I love it. I, I, absolutely. You seem like it's been a big hill to get over, though, Sin. In, in the interest of honesty, it feels like this has been quite a hill to surmount for you. Yeah, for sure. You can't win this fight. In a way, it seems there's no 
How do you describe the solo for this and how does it rank when it comes to your solos and that kind of thing? What is important about the solo to Welcome to the Family? Um, so it's an, another thing, and this is, on, this is on me. I'm I'm not a big fan of, of, the, of the solo. I don't think it's like even in my top 50. <laughs> right, okay. Um, but that's on me, right? So, yeah. Um, but I love the vibe of it. It's this call and answer thing. Mm. Right? Doesn't it have the, like, the, uh... It's just shreddy. And, yeah. and you know, and there's there's things like that. I think I did this with Afterlife, too, where it's just, you might at the time hear an acrobatic... Sometimes I, I feel like what I've done best with acrobatics and technical kind of chaos at times is create events, right? And create soundscapes rather than melody and motif. It might just need to have weird shit going on as long as the notes within are are the right notes you know like uh scream is one of those things it's such tension building to get into the the duels that come do 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 and i kind of wanted to blend both of these things right it's call and answer thing to kind of borrow the motifs from the melody but i didn't really like the stuff in between you know it's like it, to me it feels more of a traditional shreddy sort of thing mm. and if i'm going to be shreddy i i don't want to feel yeah, I sound traditional to everybody. It is what it is. If it's going to be shreddy, I'm very particular about my notes. I don't improvise solos rarely. I, I will for vibe and bendy, crazy chaos, but everything's honed in. Everything is as composed and meticulous as the songwriting is. So I approach all my solos. Doesn't matter how chaotic it is, it's, it's composed. So that I either have a good song, so this we'll call the solo songs. It's either a good song or a bad song. Just kind of no, no, no in between for me. And I should include the band in this too, because the band produces and is involved in 100% mm-hmm. of everything I do. To a fault, we overproduce each other. I overproduce Matt's vocals. Uh, Zachy might overproduce the lyrics and different things. We always overproduce e- each other, mostly for the good. Yeah. You know, I-, I do believe that, mostly for the good. So everybody's involved in these things. Um, That's why you have to wait for your records. <laughs> <laughs> it's 100% what you have to... You think we're fucking... We're just sitting on a fucking... Yeah. No, we're continually working on this new record. Hey, it's also why the record's good when it turns up. Uh, this and our new record is oh god damn it and don't for, start for them another, off for, yeah <laughs> Jesus can we just get into that you know um, and, we and will it, when yeah. we get there I know I know I know yeah I, I guess it's up to us to finish that thing anyway um, I, I blame COVID COVID yeah COVID. absolutely you, this, the official line and we're sticking to it COVID um, so yeah so so it's composed right and I just yeah. think that just not not a fan okay. I don't think it's bad it's pedestrian, trite, and saccharine at best is all I'm saying. Well, let's see what everyone else has to say about it. <laughs> Amazing. They would have used those exact words. Audience pull agrees. Yeah. I'm really looking forward to doing those chats with Sinister Gates every single month. So make sure you use the Discord, the Death Bats Club Discord, get in the podcast tab and let me know what you want from those chats. So um, I'm going to get serious for a minute because you will have noticed there's been a lot of joking around in these links. But um, something I want to tell you about 
is a little behind the scenes thing when it comes to the interviews that make up this show. And that is, it's truly special. And this is not an intentional pun, but the reverence with which the members of Avenged Sevenfold talk about Jimmy the Rev Sullivan. There's no other word for it but special. And um, I wanted to tell you all that it's kind of special that this episode, the interviews for this show, actually we started this entire project and it wasn't intentional, but um, we started this whole project on Jimmy's birthday. So... um, I think there's something quite magical to that. And uh, when we start our journey through the Avenged Sevenfold back catalogue, it is only right that we start with a song that was Jimmy's baby. And it's time to welcome you to the family. Well, to talk about the attitude of this song, uh, Welcome to the Family, you have to bring in the main inspiration, the main songwriter uh, in Jimmy. Jimmy was continuing to write really cool stuff with Pinkley Smooth. And I really wanted to utilize that um, and get the band a little more um, progressive in that and kind of spread our wings a little bit more. And he told us that he didn't feel comfortable writing pure metal. He, he felt his style didn't fit with us. And so, yeah, even after City of Evil, City of Evil, he wrote like very little. Like he wrote like, I think he wrote a little bit of Seize the Day, wrote a little bit of that, and he wrote a little bit of MIA. But as a whole, he still didn't feel comfortable. He, comfortable parts or whatever. And so on the white album, he came in with a couple bangers, right? Like he came in with like afterlife. And it's funny because when I hear that afterlife chorus, I was like, Oh yeah, it's great. And I remember Brian was just like, it's so poppy. Like, and that, that like he made him uncomfortable. He didn't like that. Right. And I was like, no, this has to be like, this is, this is rad. And he, and almost easy had more of an edge to it, but it still had that, that Jimmy thing to it where it was just like, a little bit much for Brian. Man, oh man, I, I think it's a, a contemporary new metal vibe, which I which I really love. So you have this great thing that goes into a really melodic, syrupy Charles in Charge theme. At first, I was like, I can't go do this juxtaposition of shit. But there's one one of the things, man. We're not we're not always right, <clears throat> and I was wrong about this song. I love the riff, and I wanted to keep with that theme throughout. I, I didn't want to go into this semi-classical, it's got this classical box sort of chord change where it allows you to be super melodic throughout and almost begs to be melodic and everybody loved it. Later on when we were working, there was a different chorus to that song. And I remember specifically we were, we were like, man, that's a good chorus, but it's just too poppy. You know, we got this heavy verse and, you know, we always, you know, we, we tend to go for like some of the catchier stuff and you know, but man, that one, that one was just pushing the line. It was pushing the line for a lot of us. We're like, hmm. And I remember he went, okay. Walked outside, grabbed a guitar and came back with the course that ended up being. And it was, he's like, well, okay. He always has, this is the, this is the great thing about Jimmy and his songwriting. It's very, very pertinent in this song. He always had like three or four backups to parts in case we didn't like the parts that he had in the song. Everything was thought out. He had already he he already knew basically what we were going to say in criticism and he was going to have a better way of doing it. You know, at that time we're listening uh, you know, I think like Green Day's American Idiot had come out and it was just filled with a bunch of like really really pretty melodies and stuff that are really hooky. And we always kind of incorporated that. Jimmy always loved to do that. So, if you listen to songs like Afterlife, it was always like 
huge verse riff, just fucking stompy, and then break it wide open into this beautiful melodic part. And then as we started working on Nightmare, he came up with Welcome to the Family pretty quickly, brought it in. And I remember him just like, just like mumbling this track, like, and I'm just like, is that like a higher octave or is it low? And he's like, no, no, it's a harmony, but it's like low. And fucking Brian's like, dude, it's fucking Charles in charge, dude. That is like the fucking lamest sugary. Like this is like afterlife on steroids. Like, and then, but Jimmy's like trying to like, you know, like uh, counter it with like his big riffs, like his dare. And so like, you know, if you really take it apart, you can like, there's a lot of things you can say about it. Right. And I, I get Brian's point. It's been mentioned elsewhere on this podcast, but I think that California plays a massive part in the Avenged Sevenfold story is not exactly hold the front page news. But when it comes to this particular song, Welcome to the Family, there is something so uniquely Californian about it. And what I mean by that is it's glamorous while sounding gargantuan, but it still has so much attitude. And I wanted to ask the guys, what is that attitude? What is that California sound? And how does it creep its way into the veins of Welcome to the Family? When we were coming up writing music, it was very hard to separate all the influences and all the, the just the way we were, right? You look at the music being written in Sweden or in England, it's going to be a lot different than sunny California, which has this mariachi influence and has this melting pot of all sorts of races and people and ideas. And, um, and you've got Northern California, which feels different than Southern California, but there's definitely like a cocky attitude of like, it's hard to put my finger on, but I think you, you just got to grow up in it to, to be completely blinded by the fact that you have it. <laughs> California, there's so many people and it becomes a dog eat dog world because if you want to make it ahead, if you want to date the pretty girl, you have to be better, faster, stronger than the next. You got to try harder. You got to work harder. You get in fights because everyone along the way is trying to one up you as well. That's why you get such great, you know, skateboarders, athletes, surfers, musicians. And, and all the while you're surrounded by fucking swindlers and con artists and and all sorts of shit because that's just really where you grow up. When we went to high school, uh, our group of friends were getting in fights almost every weekend, not because it was fun, but it was a necessity. You know, everyone has their, their crews and they're trying to take over their, you know, their claim to whatever they're doing, whether it's music, um, even in the hardcore scene, you know, every single concert that we go to, as soon as we started, we get threats from other bands like they're going to come to our show and fight us. And we're like, hey, fucking bring it on. You know, we'll fight you back. Like, and so there was this genuine attitude, which, which is funny because like I said, for the most part, I'm, I'm mild mannered. So this is all kind of, it was like eye opening to me and I was a part of it and I loved being a part of it. And it was a little bit scary and it was a little bit exhilarating. Um, and, you know, we brought that attitude to our music you know, when bands wanted to fight us because we were a hardcore band that had a ballad called Warmness on the Soul and that wasn't hardcore enough for them. You know, I, I specifically made pins that said, fuck hardcore with a little heart and then it said Avenged Sevenfold. And then more bands wanted to come fight us because 
we were disrespecting the fucking hardcore scene. So then I started wearing makeup <laughs> and that fucking really pissed him off. And then we all started wearing makeup and then we started playing fucking at the gate style metal and Matt started screaming and, um, you know, we started flailing our guitars on stage and people were like, what the fuck? These guys are fucking crazy. And then from there it was like, we got a shitty van. We could dress however we wanted. You know, we had a booking agent that was booking us, you know, small shows with bands that we loved and respected in front of 15 kids and 20 kids and 30 kids. And then it's like, whoa, we're on our own. We can fucking smoke and drink and fucking fuck and do whatever we want because we have a van. <laughs> We have a fucking van that we live in. Like, this is a fucking, this is our mansion as far as we're concerned. We got nobody telling us not to do this. We can do whatever we want. So from that point, we just kind of, we went crazy. And the stories are all real. And it was fun. We were having a blast. And that's, uh, that translates into our music. These stories are indeed real. And you are going to get the best Avenged Sevenfold stories anywhere only on this podcast so make sure you are subscribed for more craziness like what you just heard from zaki vengeance so here's johnny christ telling you a little bit more about the welcome to the family story including its inception he had ideas at home and just knew how to convey them he didn't have a pro tools unit at home he didn't have a studio like that he didn't record at home he just played shit wrote it and remembered it perfectly. And I don't mean every single fucking part. He played the drums on the demos. He played the guitars on the demos. He'd sing on them for most of his songs, at least the first iterations of them. And then we'd go back in and, and work, work a lot of stuff out. But he literally would have entire songs written in his head that he'd never recorded anywhere. And he'd show up to, to writing sessions with those songs and those ideas. And, um, and then we'd refine him um, as a band. Man, it's tough, like, just thinking about that song, and, and I remember so vividly those moments with Jimmy demoing them out, you know, um, going back and forth about the chorus, having him, like, just go, I, I got this idea, and he's just, you know, we, we, we're, at a, we're at a gathering, and we're going into the, into the demo studio. Meanwhile, there's a bunch of people outside, and, you know, of course, we've had a couple of drinks and he's just he's just laying into it. He's like, I didn't know what I was doing. He just said, hit, hit record. Just bring up Pro Tools and hit record. Said, All right, man. You know, and then that was that was the start of us hearing what he had been working on. And then, uh, you know, of course, we all get in there. And as I said, we start refining stuff and putting our own little spins on our parts and stuff. And it becomes the song that we're we knew was was going to be a great one for the record before we even had the tagline, Welcome to the Family. Of course, with this song being a Jimmy creation, the drums play a huge part. Why wouldn't they? One man who knows all about shredding around a drum kit is Mr. Brooks Wackerman. But before you find out about the flair and fills which act as the heartbeat of Welcome to the Family, you should probably hear how Brooks himself was brought to the seven fold. My jokes will get better as this goes along, I promise. In 2014, my good friend and manager, Dione Sepulveda, who's our current tour manager for Avenged, called me up and said, listen, Venge is interested in having you come down. It wasn't even like come down to play. It was a dinner 
that he wanted to set up with with the guys. I met Jimmy a couple times, um, but I had never met any of the other guys. So, and of course, I respected the band, and and I told Dione, yeah, of course, I'm interested. And at that time, I was playing in Bad Religion and had a an amazing run with with those guys. Um, however, at that time, I was keeping the door open for musical opportunities, and this came my way. We went out to dinner. It was Matt and Brian that were there. I was nervous, you know, because I, I had never met these guys, and in a way, it did feel like a job interview, even though I didn't want it to be like that, and they didn't make it feel that way. It was just very casual, you know, and, and once once I sat down, any nerves that I had just kind of went to the wayside, and, you know, we just started talking about just music and and just an array of subjects, and um, I told them what I wanted as far as not being a hired gun in a band. And, and so what, what was important was learning, okay, do they want a hired gun or do they want a, a band member? And luckily they wanted a band member. They wanted someone that, um, you know, was 1 million percent committed to Event Sevenfold. And so that was very attractive because not only do I love playing drums, I also love songwriting and making decisions about you know everything from what the production is going to look like and visuals and so they were they were very clear on bringing someone in that was a full-fledged band member so yeah we kind of just touched on that and talked about family talked about you know where we want to go in the future and, and it just all lined up perfectly so we got together played uh, a couple weeks later they told me four or five songs to learn and it went well. We, we jammed for like two days. I didn't think the first rehearsal went that well, but I think I was just in my head, but I believe it went better than expected. And then the second day I felt like everything was gelling. My favorite event songs are usually Jimmy's and, or he's a co-writer on it. So, and I can tell that's, that's him, you know, from drummer to drummer. So, I, I think when you have a songwriting element to music, you approach music differently. You, you know, you see the bigger picture and he, he had that, you know, so between the songwriter and also his finesse technical ability, I, I think, you know, all these components is what made him. To get technical, it's four on the hands, two on the feet. And then at the on the last measure, he does like a double time on the feet before going into the, the groove. And I think that's really clever. And yeah, it took some time to get nice and crisp when I practiced it. But I mean, yeah, I mean, talk about a, a opening fill that just kicks things off. It's really powerful. It's technical, but it 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 totally works with the song. And I think I think that type of technicality is cool because you're you're going into that four four groove so it, it's a nice it's a nice dichotomy of um, feels
all the fills that he chooses doesn't, you know, clash with vocals and it's just, you know, a perfectly constructed drum piece. But yeah, I I love playing that song live um, and the audience usually goes nuts when we play that one. You just think everything's going to be the way it is forever. I wouldn't check in on the songwriting every single day. I didn't feel that I needed to. You know, I knew that there's this cool song in the works and I kind of wanted to let it get finished. And I know that Jimmy had pretty much just finished it and then he passed away. I mean, within, you know, days and didn't even know the song was finished or existed until a, a couple days after he'd passed, me and Matt had got together <clears throat> and Matt was like, you know, took me in his car and he's like, hey, I want you to hear this. And he played me the demo, which is pretty much exactly the same as the recorded version of Welcome to the Family. And I sat there like numb. It was one of the greatest songs that I've ever heard. It was perfect for the, the style that I liked at that point in my life. I thought the like, I've always been a huge fan of just monster verses and <clears throat> lyrically, and then it goes into this, the saddest chorus and hearing, you know, Jimmy sing a melody on it, knowing he's, he's not with you and he passed and he's singing this, he finally nailed that perfect melody that he was going for. I just sat there and I was just thinking to myself, this is one of the greatest fucking, you know, songs that I've ever heard. And I remember going home and telling my wife at the time, like, you know, tears in my eyes, just sitting there still stunned. Like we're sitting on like what I believe is a masterpiece and the world has to hear this. Like if it's the last thing that we do, we have to have everybody, as many people in the world hear this. Like that's what I can contribute to this world is making sure that people hear this song the way that it needs to be. And we brought it into the studio and we had to do it justice. What is so fascinating about Welcome to the Family as a title is that it works on two separate levels, but the actual meaning is far darker than people would expect when it comes to the sound of the song and the title itself. You know, the title itself, Welcome to the Family, works perfectly for us on this first episode. That's what it's about. Welcome to the family, welcome to this new show, welcome to the Death Bats Club. There's a lot of things for us to welcome you to right now. It's a positive thing. Only when you dig into the lyrics of this song, it's not quite what it seems. Welcome to the family is about anger, is about grief, and is about togetherness when it comes to that anger and grief. It's about you, it's about the band, and it's always about the music. It is more of the uh, approach of the the larger universe uh, cutting you down in size. You know, you think that you're unstoppable. You think that nothing can hurt you. And then you're quickly, your legs are cut out from underneath you. And it's the universe kind of yelling at you. Like, do I have your attention? You know, this, this is life. This is what happens. It's never something that uh, you expect to deal with. And it's not something that you ever expect to deal with in terms of, you're just a young person that that has never experienced death. Um, and Jimmy actually had the lyric, welcome to the family beforehand, but it obviously was just a, a placement, right? Usually I, I would kind of redo something else, but it was so almost the irony of it, of like, he dies and then 
now we understand what everybody else in the world that's ever dealt with grief and pain had gone through. So it's almost like, welcome to the family, guys. Now, now you get it. Now you understand how serious all this stuff is. And so it really was this, this sort of like, we, we, we start here. We never asked to be here. And then one day it gets taken away. And it could be your best friend. It could be you. It could be your parents. And, but there's many people around the world that have felt the same pain and the same loss of love. And now we are being welcomed into that family of the, the, the miserable at the time, right? The, just the heartbroken, the, the ones that, that now understand what losing somebody that's as close as you can be, we understand now what that's like. So it's kind of like, welcome to the family. I'll try and help you with the things that can't be justified. I need to warn you that there is no way to rationalize. The way that the lyrics come together, there's a genuine anger in Matt's lyrics and in his voice and a genuine sadness in the chorus. And it wasn't just me that felt that way. It was everyone. And everyone just gave their own input which at the time was sadness, frustration, you know, being scared, all the emotions that you feel and wrapping it up into the song to deliver to the fans. Hey kid, do I have your attention? I know the way you've been living. Life so reckless, tragedy endless. Welcome to the family. Hey! The lyrics were very poignant and, and written from a perspective of someone talking to us, talking to, to me talking to um, these cocky kids that nothing could go wrong and then everything goes wrong. Here's something that I want to bring to you straight off the bat, episode one. I think it's so important to point this out and that is Avenged Sevenfold are a real band. That means real emotions and not sugarcoating anything. Being real with you, there's a lot of use of the word real there, but you understand where I'm coming from. Being honest with you, a lot of these shows and the songs that we cover are going to be quite joyous experiences. There's going to be a lot of laughter. There's going to be a lot of cool stories. There's going to be a lot of camaraderie amongst the band. But when it comes to the Nightmare album, it stands to reason that things are a little bit more difficult. In the interest of being real... Life isn't always sunshine and rainbows, so let's talk about why recording Nightmare was so difficult before, um, yeah, there's some big things on the horizon in this episode. To be honest, you know, the whole studio session, aside from, you know, really wanting to honor Jimmy's legacy, a lot of it's a blur because we were so almost hovering over ourselves, like we were just a shell of a human being that was sent on, a, the only purpose was to make sure that this album was as good as it was supposed to be. And it was like something took over us and kind of compelled us and controlled us to make every decision when it came to, you know, sound, timing, um, you know, with the album we're working on now and, you know, past albums, we're, you know, more meticulous and we can sit there and, and, and think about things and nitpick stuff. And for this, it was like, we have to go in there and just fucking record it you know, before we fucking explode or self implode or fucking break up or fucking have a heart attack and die. Like we just have to fucking do it. There's no if, ands or buts, get in there, fucking record it, finish it, get it out. And then we can all fucking die <laughs> at the end of the day. We just, that's it. Just do that. And then we can fucking literally die 
and will have served our purpose as Avenged Sevenfold as human beings. Um, and that's what we did. So when I come back and I hear that song and, you know, for it to resonate with fans and hearing it on the radio, I was like, yes, this is a fucking angry, pissed off, sad, melodic song that has a real story behind it. The way a group gels together is so important, right? Like, like the five of us gelling in a way that makes it comfortable. It does. It's not a job. It's what we want to do. It's fun. And all of a sudden it became... I mean, as great as Mike Portnoy is, it just became a different thing. And it was like, now there's different things involved and there's different attitudes and different, and not in a negative way, just different. It almost didn't seem worth it, right? It's like, we just lost our best friend. The music was going to take a backseat regardless to everything we were going through. We were bitter, um, watching everyone party on New Year's Eve in Times Square, sitting at home, as miserable as it can be. And then we decided to finish the record for him. And as we were finishing, it was like, yeah, this would be a good way to go out. You know, like it's, it's all good. Like we can't really imagine it in any other way. It shows the human spirit at some point, at some level that eventually we pick ourselves back up and we go, okay, it's just different. We got to figure it out. And if, and if we didn't love the music still, we just wouldn't do it. Um, but there's so much music to be made. And so it, it, uh, it was a rough time, no doubt about it, but it's, it's why you don't want to make, harsh decisions in the moment of grief or being at your lowest point. As we begin to wind down the Welcome to the Family story and we begin to wind down the talking about the recording of the song and the inception and the writing, there's something so massive to discuss when it comes to the live environment. I hadn't even stopped to consider what the first date must have looked like for the Avenged Sevenfold guys, what they'd been through, the journey they'd been on, the talks of splitting up. There was all manner of deep things when it came to Avenged Sevenfold and the recording of Nightmare. But what I hadn't considered was the wealth of emotions that would happen at that live show. July 25th, 2010, Montreal, Quebec, Canada. And... Um, I think what you're about to hear from Zaki Vengeance is one of the coldest things that I've ever heard in an interview. Uh, in terms of my emotions, it actually made my blood run cold. So, um, yeah, here's the realness that I was talking about live and direct from Zaki Vengeance. Without considering our fans part of the family, we would not be a band right now. There's no doubt about it. Um, we, we basically had decided that once we finished the Nightmare album, that it, it was going to be too hard to continue on. We, we really, really tried. And the first show we ever got back on stage was in Montreal, and none of us really wanted to do it. And I'm sure the story's been told, but I was flying there just wishing that the plane would crash, which is a fucking grim, grim reality. But I, But I meant it, too. And... Um, we got on stage dismal and, and sad and there was thousands, tens of thousands of fans holding up signs and stuff. And it was like at that moment, you realize that all these people, you know, people we've never even met had to go through this tragic experience with us. And you realize that that's part of your family. I definitely did not want the plan to crash. <laughs> yeah, that's, that is, um, that's, listen, we all went through miserable, miserable times and that must've been one for him. And I don't know if I was further along than him in this process or if 
playing the show wasn't as big of an undertaking as it was for him. I just don't know. I maybe just the fact that I had to go sing these songs and, and finish the lyrics and do all that stuff. I may have let more out at an earlier time than that. So yeah, that's, that's sad. To me, one of the greatest experiences and, and we were bawling our eyes out, all, all of us was, was playing that show and, and seeing our fans again. And I think that's when it, it hit us that they were, they were hurting as much as us, if not more. And I honestly mean that because this is the reason. We had each other to grieve. We had all the information. We were able to share all the stuff. We had his family. What if you lost a best friend or an idol that you just felt that you knew and loved so much and he was gone and you have the rest of the band that are your idols and your friends and family. Let's fuck idols. Fuck that. But your family and gone through all this shit together and you don't get to connect with them. You don't get to connect with, with us the way that we got to connect. Jesus Christ, I haven't even... Nothing's made me even misty-eyed for a long fucking time. Our fans didn't get that. We got such a cathartic sense of grieve expedition, meaning our grieving was, yes, turbulent as fuck, but we laughed, loved, and fucking cried every bit of the way. An emphasis on, on laughing. The fans never got that heartbreaking that they, that they had to endure that tragedy essentially alone. So when we connected with them on stage for the first time, there was nothing, nothing like that. It was, to use the, the same word, again, cathartic. It did feel like a, like a, like a camaraderie, a bringing, a bringing together in a way of us with our fan base that we hadn't seen in a, in a minute and certainly had never seen without Jimmy. And uh, we just kind of lifted all of each other up. And I'm always going to be super grateful, thankful, everything like that to our fan base that helped us get back out and get us back together and doing the thing that we absolutely love doing and couldn't imagine doing without Jimmy and then uh, getting the strength from them to continue on. Now, I'm a man who likes to keep his promises, and I promise you, on absolutely every episode of this show, you will learn something about Avenged Sevenfold that you didn't know before you came in. Would you like to hear something about Welcome to the Family that nobody else anywhere else has heard before? Oh, yes, you would. It involves the Dave Matthews Band, but don't let that put you off. Shads. Dave Matthews Band? Yeah, so it's a, it was a studio trick, right? Um, we were trying to come up with a song. We thought he did something really innovative where he would keep elongating a certain line as he repeated it. So it's why I am, a why I am, it's why I am, right? So he keeps elongating the same line. So we kept trying to write songs that did that. And I think Jimmy had one and it, it never quite made it. I remember he was... Um, he kept bringing it in. We kept going, we got to fucking pull that off. We got to do that. It's so cool. And then, so at the end of the last chorus on Welcome to the Family, it, you know, it goes, you can't win this fight. And then it goes, you can't win this. It's the same as the first two, but it's elongated. And that was our way to get the Dave Matthews little like trick into the song. And I remember I was like, ah, I see what you did, Jimmy. I know what you did. Uh, 
a secret I'll never tell until we do a podcast. Uh, but yeah, that, that was a, so listen to why I am. And you can hear that Dave Matthews repeats that chorus or does the chorus. And every time he makes it longer as the, as the song goes on. And that's what we did on the end of welcome to the family, which I thought was, it would, it, I never heard it done in metal. I never heard it done in rock. And I think it's one of those things where you're just like, Oh, that's clever. That's cool. I'm almost bummed out to be getting to the end of this episode. I hope you've had as much fun listening as we had putting it together. But as we look at the entire Avenged Sevenfold back catalogue, you've got your favourite songs, I've got my favourite songs. We are going to cover them all, good, bad and ugly, because even in the conversations that we've had internally, it's been interesting to hear the different thoughts on the albums and the songs that we're going to be covering. Please do get in the death bats club discord and use the podcast tab we're going to be having votes there for what song is next and all manner of great things but that's my view you've got your views but when we speak to the band what are they most excited about as we look at their entire back catalogue and look towards what is going to be one hell of an epic journey you know, you kind of put them away in the vault and you don't think about them again. And one thing that we really try to do is we try to do that because we don't ever want to, um, we don't ever want to use our own tricks. One thing that we went really hard on this time is like, we'd always played within the rules of like the click track, right? Whether it's like, you can do a lot of really cool things with a click track, but there's, there's like another level to it. There's things you can do that I never imagined were possible and then also throwing that out completely. Right. So one thing that we had when we first started was that Brian would always talk shit on sounding the seventh trumpet because it wasn't done to a click. And our biggest thing was like, but Pantera doesn't play to a click. And so that was our rebuttal. But then he would show us record after record, after record, after record, and they were all on a click. Right. And so even a lot of our favorite bands and he who's counting, he was like, see, it's all on a click. They're going halftime here. They're doing this. They're going in three. It's on the click. And so finally we've started using a click from waking the fallen on. But I think a lot of times that will, it hones in a lot of things, but it also constrains you in certain ways. And I think on this new record, we really played around what it means to be circling around a vibe and a, a tempo. There's things that are just going to make you look at, like if you're driving in the car, you're just going to look at your like what? <laughs> and, but, but I think that was the point, you know, like to, to kind of give you the, the, the smack out of the, you know, right out of the speakers, it smacks you in the face. You go like, what did I just hear? And you have to kind of rewind it. Go like, did they mean to do that? And so I think that's fun and it's interesting. So we, we play with that a lot in the new record. To, to be honest, it brings me back to moments that get lost. You know, I'm so thrilled to be able to share these stories with our fans because I don't want these moments to get lost. Just sitting here and diving into these songs, every single one of them has a story and a time and a place, you know, including the stuff that we're working on right now and, and stuff that, you know, every single song has its importance. And we capture that. That's, that's what we do as a band. And that's what we always have done. It hasn't just been about writing a song in hopes that people will like it and hoping the radio will play it. Like, we don't fucking care. We've never cared. And, you know, people are like, oh, you guys need to do this and do this. And we're just thinking, you guys are literally talking to the only fucking band that doesn't fucking care. Like, we only care about capturing what is in our hearts at that time and place and making it sound as great as we can to give to fans and, you know, perform it live. 
And then from there, you know, whatever, have an opinion. I don't, I don't fucking care because like I said, we had everything, we had it all taken away from us. And at this point, like, we're just thankful and appreciative of every moment. We take nothing for granted, but like, we're also as fearless now as we were on day one, if, if not more so, because, you know, how are you going to write great music if you're trying to make a bunch of people that aren't us happy? We just write what's in our heart and then our fans, I think they appreciate that about us. So being able to tell the stories, share it with fans that want to hear it, um, I think they really deserve to know how, how this all came to be. Well, when we make you a promise, we sure do deliver. I hope you enjoyed listening to that as much as we did putting it together. Welcome to the family is in the can. Again, shout out to the guys from Avengers Sevenfold for being such good sports in putting this together. It was really fun. It was really moving. uh, And it's the start of a brilliant journey together. Don't forget, Welcome to the Family t-shirt is officially available for a short while. A7XWorld.com. This is a limited drop. So if you want to get involved, and get the official Welcome to the Family shirt. First ever one of these as well. So will be really, really rare. A7XWorld.com to go and check that out. Thanks again to Mike G for doing the design. MikeV-G.com. That is MikeV-G.com if you want to go and check him out. His character, Oliver Ouch, is all over the Welcome to the Family design and a one-of-one NFT. Mike G's design for Welcome to the Family is going to be airdropped to one of our Death Bats Club holders for free. That's right, absolutely free of charge. One of you is going to get the official artwork for Welcome to the Family to keep or flip forever. So that is it from me. I have been bees. It's been an honour to be here with you. I'll be here next month, as will Kieran and Courtney. Terry B666, if you feel like following me on any of those things. And... Um, Much like all good things, stick around after the credits because if you are a Death Bats Club holder, in the future, in the podcast tab, in the Discord, I'm going to be asking you to ask questions like this at the end of every episode. So uh, roll them credits and stick around because fun awaits. Okay, first up in our post-credits section. So... If you are old enough, you'll remember MySpace quizzes. If you're not, don't worry about it. This is going to be wicked. Every month, we're going to put together 10 questions at the end of every episode. And in future, those things will be curated by you. So make sure you're in the Discord if you are a Death Bats Club holder. Uh, For now, these are my questions pertaining to welcome to the family. So, Johnny Christ, you're my first victim. Um, (laughs) Describe your family in one word, mate. Well, are we talking? Are we talking nuclear family? Or are we talking? Uh, are we talking uh, the the whole the whole Seward clan? Both, one for each. If, if you if you're gonna step into my bed <laughs> like that, one for each. One for your immediate family, and one for your larger one. I'll just, I could give you, I you know, just fucking filthy, just fucking filthy. <laughs> it comes as no surprise, mate. What was the biggest lie you told your parents growing up? Oh fuck me. Uh... So many lies, so many lies. He's like Pinocchio here, ladies and gentlemen. (laughs) (laughs) Nose is growing by the second. Dude, the biggest lie I ever told my parents. Dude, I don't know. I mean, how many times can I count that I told them I wasn't high or drunk when I was 12 (laughs) years old? You know what I mean? like It's on brand, Johnny. It's on brand. Uh, 
Your, your family are having a game night. What are you playing? Monopoly. Love it. Are you any good at it? Yeah, fucking of course I am. I win every time. <laughs> if you could have a celebrity family member, who would you have and why? Fuck, that's a great one. So I wouldn't want to go with a hot chick because it'd be part of my family. That'd be weird, right? I mean, it's big on Pornhub. But like, <laughs> it's not, I wouldn't recommend it for your own what's, family. What's, porn, what, what's Pornhub, bees? I don't know what that is. <laughs> Lies again. <laughs> What's the biggest lie you told your podcast host? <laughs> oh man, I would love uh, right now. I would love probably to have the Rock, Dwayne the Rock Johnson. Yeah, I'd love to have him as uh, a part of the family. Seems like a good dude. He'd keep me. He'd keep me straight on the narrow. He'd probably give me a couple sips of uh, tequila. I don't know. He seems like a good dude. I don't know. Yeah. And he'd smell what your missus is cooking. Um, oh. So, what is a fact about your family that nobody listening to this podcast would know? Here's one that goes back to our, our conversation. I didn't live in Huntington Beach my entire life. Uh, we actually moved to Westminster for a while. So, uh, my family lived in Westminster for quite a bit, not, not just in Huntington Beach. Perfect. Do you remember what you had on your bedroom walls as a teenager? <laughs> Uh, I had a rancid poster. I had uh, cutouts of Jennifer Love Hewitt. Amazing. Uh, what what else did I have up there? I had oh, I had a bunch of of those glow in the dark stars that I hung up everywhere, so that when I turned the lights out and turned the black light on at night, um, I I felt like I was somewhere else. I think that was basically it as far as that as far as what was on the walls. Uh, you're going for a family meal. Where are you going and what are you eating? Oh, Don Jose's, and I'm getting the Don Jose sampler right here in Huntington Beach. It's a that's a staple um, for me. I'll be down your end some way soon. I will check it out. Did you have a nickname given to you by your family? I was Jumping Johnny because when we did our wrestling, as we talked about before, that was my wrestling name. I love it, Jumping Johnny Christ. If someone out there wants to make a shirt or a something, we'll see you in the Discord. What did your family think of the name you use in Avenged Sevenfold? When you told them that you were Johnny Christ, what did they say? They didn't like it. But they didn't, I mean, they kind of, they, they, they knew it was tongue-in-cheek and kind of laughed about it. Um, but also my mother, of all people, was definitely like, I can't believe you go around calling yourself Johnny Christ. Your name is Jonathan Seward, okay? And to this day, she refuses to call me anything else but Jonathan. Which song would you make your family anthem, Johnny Christ? That's a tough one. Um, family anthem. Shit. Oh, God. You, you bring in the hard-hitting MySpace questions here, man. It's, it's fucking... Hey, not, not, not just the hat rack, my friend. Not just the hat rack. I could riff all day, but when I get, when I get pinpointed on shit, that's when, that's when, I, that's when I clam up. Um, the first answer is usually a good one. The first <laughs> one that comes to mind is always a good one. Uh, I can't even... Uh, I love rock and roll. Zachy, you're next up for my MySpace quiz. Could you describe your family in one word? Absolutely. <laughs> Let me try that again. <laughs> one word. Absolutely. I can only accept your first. <laughs> I can only accept your first answer. My family in one word. Um, colorful. I like it. I'll leave it at that. What is the biggest lie you told your parents as a kid? The biggest lie I told my parents as a kid was that I didn't drink and drive the first day I got my license. 
I was so dumb. <laughs> oh, brutal. Brutal. Uh, your family are having a game night. What are you playing? Left, right, center. What's left, right, center for a foreigner like me? It's a, a very simple dice gambling game where everyone puts in some money and then you just, you know, shake the dice and then you, you know, you give it to the next person and whoever gets stuck holding the token. It's very simple. So me and me and my dad can drink a lot and uh, still function and play. <laughs> love it. Love it. Uh, if you could have a celebrity family member, who would you have and why? Oh, I'd fucking, it would be Will Ferrell. Because uh, I think he's the fucking funniest guy ever. And, you know, we could definitely, definitely use, use some laughs. So what is a fact about your family that nobody listening to this podcast would know? Does someone have a hidden talent or something like that? Yeah, my, my entire family, you know, I'm proud of each and every one of them. My brother is a phenom at just about anything he's, he does. A fact about my brother is he was helping me design our website, album covers, you know, merchandise since he was seven years old. He figured out how to use the internet when me and Matt were starting Avenged Sevenfold. He made our first websites. He helped us orchestrate, you know, our last couple albums. He is a remarkable musician, uh, wonderful at technology. He's just, I mean, a million times smarter than me. I'm not saying much, but. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> did he did he help with the artwork for this podcast, or was this all you? No, he he did. He was he was my go to. I I went straight to him. Hell yeah! Yeah, he's killer. He's just a truly talented kid. Give him a high five from me because I think the artwork rips and it looks a bit like Euphoria, so I'm all about it. Uh, do you remember what you had on your bedroom walls as a teenager? Yes, um, I had a Vandals poster. Yes. <laughs> I had an AFI Very Proud of You poster. Come on, all the best bands. Oh, it was, it was, yeah, I had a Nitro Records. Yes, mate, big up Rufio. <laughs> yeah, I remember <laughs> Rufio. Um, I had a a school crossing sign that I'd stolen. Um, I don't know why I fucking stole a school crossing sign, but I, I drew, uh, Liberty spikes on the little characters for the big yellow school crossing sign. So it was like a punk crossing sign. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. I love it. You're going for a family meal. Where are you going and what are you eating? Definitely going to some sort of brewery. Because to feed to feed your children beer. To feed, I'll tell you what, my my kids try and steal my beer, but nothing nothing in the world's more fun than getting together with my with my parents. My, you know, my dad and drinking beer, just talking about everything. He loves to hear about what we're doing musically and fucking NFTs. He just loves learning about anything we're doing. And then by the end of it, we're both usually pretty good and drunk, and it's just a great bonding experience. And then obviously, you know, when you're at a brewery, you don't you get to eat whatever junk food you want. So absolutely, mate. Did you have a nickname given to you by your family? Um, I was Zach Attack growing up. Is that Saved by the Bell based? You know, it probably was at the time. Um, that was, <laughs> you know, they gave it to me when I was a kid and I was playing little league baseball. I guess they couldn't come up with anything more clever than the only uh, word in, in English history that rhymes with Zach. So it was Zach attack. <laughs> oh, oh, this is my favorite question of all of them. What did your family think of the name you use in Avenged Sevenfold when you told them? So when you said um, Zachy Vengeance in the band, what did they make of it? You know, at that moment, 
in time. You know, I was wearing eyeliner and way too tight clothes. And I think I had girls dicky pants on and, uh, they probably just looked at me like, what the fuck? This is awesome. <laughs> they were, they were always, they were always super supportive of what, the, what they said behind closed doors is probably funny. Um, in fact, I'll probably have to, I'll have to find out, but, uh, yeah, there, there was no issue. I think they just thought that I was fucking crazy. And I think that they probably, you know, were deep down thinking, don't quit your day job. Finally, which song would you make your family anthem? Does it have to be an Avenged song or it can be anything? No, 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 no. I would insist that it isn't. Like, a, is there a song that, like, you associate with your family or give your song or something that encapsulates you? Uh, Johnny picked I Love Rock and Roll. Fuck, he beat me to it. That's that's a good one. Um, <laughs> it's either going to be between Led Zeppelin or Black Sabbath. Oh, being of a being of a British persuasion, you've clearly got good taste. Oh yeah, that's that's my parents. Those were their two favorite bands, so I gotta be indulged. Cool parents, man. Cool parents. Absolutely. My parents, you know, went and saw Black Sabbath's first ever LA show. Holy shit! Yeah. So so for this one, I'm gonna go with Black Sabbath, and the song that I'm gonna pick is. Fairies wear boots. Hell yeah, you better believe us. Yep, and the reason the reason that I'm going with that is because I always grew up listening to Black Sabbath. I got to stand, you know, in in Austria or somewhere with my dad. You know, flew him out on tour when we were playing a concert with Black Sabbath. We just stood there in awe watching him. It was a generational thing. My dad grew up with them, helped me grow up with them, and then to share that experience and be able to go on OzFest together. I named my son Ozzy. Yeah, that's it's fucking Black Sabbath all the way. All right, Matt Shadows, you are my next victim for this MySpace quiz. First up, describe your family in one word. Dedicated. Love that. Right. What is the biggest lie you told your parents growing up? And we can't accept the tattoos one because you've already told us that one. It's a guilty laugh, Matt Shadows. <laughs> this might not be a lie, but... I could hear them having sex every once in a while, and I never told them to just stop. <laughs> so it's kind of a lie. <laughs> That's incredible. You're all right, moving swiftly on. Yeah, yeah. Your family are having a game night. What are you playing? And I know you're, you and your kids and stuff are massive into gaming and all kinds of things. We've been playing some Twister. Really? Yeah. How's it, how limber are you, Matt? I'm out. I'm out instantly all the time. These kids, they don't they don't lose. And my wife is obviously, she's in great shape and she can just do whatever. So I'm 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 out always. <laughs> if you could have a celebrity family member, who would you have and why? Adam Sandler. That guy seems so cool to me. I just want to like play golf with him and hang out and just I think he's got a great sense of humor. <laughs> What is a fact about your family that nobody listening to this podcast knows? My great-grandfather's grandfather was the captain of the Bismarck and went down with it, that World War II ship, or the German ship. Holy shit, and his, his name the opposition. Was, his, his name was like Linden Molden. <laughs> I think his last name was Linden Molden. Wow. Okay, yeah. that, that, that's way out there. Do you remember what you had on your bedroom walls? Oh, every like hit parader, every, I mean, every single poster of every band was on my walls and every sticker, K-Rock stickers, uh, no effects, badgers, so all that stuff. And then earlier in my life, I had like basketball um, wallpaper. 
Fuck yeah. Right. Um, you're going for a family meal. Where are you going and what are you eating? Shabu Shabu on Main Street. My kids love Shabu. Did you have a nickname given to you by your family? Bullhog. The Sandman. <laughs> I was the Sandman. I played shortstop and it was the, it was the Sandman. I don't know what, probably because Sanders, you know? Yeah, ah, I, yeah, I like Sandman. it. Yeah. This is my favorite question that I've asked you all day. What did your family think of the name you use in Avenged Sevenfold when you told them? So when you said, I am Matt Shadows to your folks, what did they say? I just think they thought it was funny. You know, they're like, they rolled with it. They rolled with it. Yeah. No, I, I listen, I, I would rather that you, I don't, I would, I, even when your actual name comes up on this Zoom call, I'm not into it. Can you not change it to Shadows? <laughs> uh, last thing though, what song would you make your family anthem? The one song that makes everybody laugh and and makes them so happy when it comes on is um, I Think You Freaky by Diane Ward. <laughs> I think you freaky, yeah, I like you a lot. Oh, dude, sexy boys. And they, they, they <laughs> pump in and then my kids just start cracking up. They fucking dance. It's great. All right, Brooks meets Bees for the first time. Describe your family in one word. Colorful. I'm going to throw in musical as well. Just a, just a little bit. Uh, this is a good one. What is the biggest lie you told your parents growing up? Biggest lie? Jesus. Um, that she's my age. <laughs> your family, I'll leave it there. Your family having a game night. What are you playing? The worst case scenario. What is the worst case scenario? I've not, I'm not aware of it. Uh, it's a game that we found at Target, and um, you flip over five cards that have just the worst-case scenarios, and the, there's five, it's one through five, and you have to rate the the worst and the least worst scenario is. Love it. Um, if you could have a celebrity family member, who would you have and why? Daniel Day-Lewis, because he retired from acting and is now a cobbler and i would like to pick his brain about why he chose the world of cobbling do you remember what you had on your bedroom walls yeah i had guns and roses frank zappa motley crew lovely that is a spread a really good <laughs> spread i like it um, you're going for a family meal where are you going and what are you eating gosh i'll say Mahe, which is a fantastic sushi restaurant in um, Seal Beach, California. Very lovely. Um, did you have a nickname given to you by your family? Well, my wife calls me Brooksy. That, that, that doesn't count. That's just a Y on the end of That's your first name. Okay. Is that, is that a nickname? My sons call me uh, Papa Pooch. So the story is, have you seen women wear these... Uh, uh, they attach these like fur balls on their purses. Yes. It was very in vogue, I think, like maybe two years ago. But my wife has one, and my my 12-year-old boys started calling her uh, Mama Pooch because they called the, the ball a pooch. So that <laughs> so now I'm Papa Pooch because she's Mama Pooch. Guilty by association. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> That I guess that would be my nickname. Yeah. I love it. I love it. This is this is a good one because 
the question is, what did your family think of the name you use in Avenged Sevenfold? But you are Brooks Wackerman in Avenged Sevenfold. If you had to pick a name, and I'm certain you've been asked this question loads over the years, if you did, if you did have to pick a name, you know, in a band with shadows and vengeance and Christs, quite literally, an actual JC, no less, what would your Avenged Sevenfold name be? It would remain as Brooks Wackerman because most people think that's a pseudonym. Did I really? Yeah, a lot. So anyone is that, that, is that because you're a drummer and your surname is Onomatopoeia? No. You are literally a Wackerman. <laughs> so anyone that wasn't familiar with my work before joining Event Sevenfold believe that I that my pseudonym is Brooks Wackerman because how could I be a drummer if I if people didn't think that? I guess Harry Styles. Uh, hey, hey, I'm all for it, man. You're like, you're, yeah, well, we're going in one direction. That's all the way to the top, man. Last question. He went solo. He went solo. He did. Too, so, he, yeah. did. he did. He did. Massive yeah. as well. So final question. This is a big one, actually, for someone from a family so musical. Which song would you make your family anthem? Let's go with, um, what, what's the big Eminem song that he just did at, um, at Super Bowl? Oh, Lose Yourself. What's it called? Lose Yourself. Lose Yourself by yeah. Mom's Spaghetti. Mom's Spaghetti. You know, he's talking about his life. He's talking about persevering in life. We, we always um, tell our kids to do that. Don't give up. And whenever I hear that song, I just feel like I either want to fight someone or I want to go rob a bank. So... <laughs> All right, Sinister Gates, my final victim on the MySpace quiz. Um, describe your family in one word. Family. <laughs> <laughs> Motherfucker. Yeah. Goddamn. Yeah. Uh, Fuck off. Go. Well, I'm, you're not going to get away with this one. What is the biggest lie you told your parents growing up? Oh, my God, the biggest. I'm so, I'm so sorry. I just, I lied throughout my childhood. <laughs> I don't remember the, the greatest... There's something there. I'll, I'll send you. I'll, I'll let me let me think about that one. This to be continued. Okay. So your family are having a game night. What are you playing? Could be video games. Could be a board game. Oh, that's that's great. What are what are we fucking? We're playing. Um, little play on words. We're playing music. Ah, um, oh, I love it. So we don't we don't really do games. Like we we put on YouTube and we play a bunch of mi- music videos, and then I'll transcribe whatever ones their favorite. And play those for the next week. So it's been lately. It's been Strawberry Fields Forever, um, one of the most fabulous fucking songs I've ever not heard until just now. God damn it! What's her name? Um, Ima, Ima, how do you say it? Imagine Heaps? Imogen, oh, Imogen Heap. Yeah, yeah. Imogen Heap. Yeah. Um, what you say? What all oh, that you gotta be there? Of course it is. What you say? What did you say? What song is that? The hide and seek. Got ya. It's her on like this isotope fucking vocoder sort of thing and it's so it's acapella it's just hers it's fascinating wow she's brilliant she's a um a brilliant crypto native like since day one entrepreneur you should see this glove thing that she does that she orchestrates. you got to see her on tiny small small tiny desk yeah tiny desk concert tiny desk yeah, concert yeah. incredible Brilliant. Oh, she's fucking next level. Huh. I'm a sucker for that acapella stuff as well. There's a, there's a band out of the UK I'll give a shout out to called Sleep Token who wrote a song called Fall For Me and it's unbelievable on that oh, front. So, if you could have a celebrity family member, who would you have and why? Any celebrity is now part of your family. Who would you like? Fuck, it's got to be Paul McCartney. 
Nice. You said Paul McCartney. Shadows said Adam Sandler. Variety is the spice of life, I think. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Can um, I change mine to Elon Musk? Oh, yes. Yeah, yeah. Can I change to Elon Musk? Can can he help out your your friend journalist with some some moolah? Tell him I'm locking him in the fucking basement. (laughs) For me now, Elon. What is a fact about your family that nobody knows? God damn it. What is a fact about my family that nobody knows? So if someone's got an amazing talent that nobody knows about, if, so, if someone has made an achievement that nobody knows about, we're looking for something positive here. Yeah, That's yeah, That's yeah. always my um, vibe. What about your dad and his musical stuff? Is there something that no one would know? He ever play with someone? My, he ever dad, my dad's an amazing, amazing historian. Like, he can wax poetic on constitutional law, the Revolutionary War... Why we came here in the first place, colonialism, fascinating. Papa Gates is best suited to tell me the lie that I've never told anybody. <laughs> See right through all that yeah, shit. Yeah, it's what they know and didn't tell you. I think that's the interesting it, one. Exactly. So did you have a nickname given to you by your family? Yeah, when my parents were fighting for the divorce. Oh, my God, I can't tell this. Yeah, you can. Bring it on. I, I, I had two nicknames. So this is, this is how petty we, we fucking got. Um, I wanted a nickname, I think, or whatever. So my mom called me BJ, Brian Jr. And my dad's like, oh, I can't, I really can't tell this one. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, I can tell you my mom's, yeah, my mom's side. Do that one. Um, she called me BJ and my dad's like, what, why are you, why would your mother, and, and I was yeah. 10, 11 years <laughs> old. And he's like, you, you know, your mother calls you BJ, right? Do you know what that means? She's calling you blowjob. Why the fuck would she do that shit to you? You're just a kid. And, it, I mean, just hey, play back and forth. Yeah, of course. It's the it's the situation speaking more than the fact that you were being called by yes. your initials. I hear you. I hear you. So you're going for a family meal. Where are you going and what are you eating? Man, uh, you can take me to sushi or Mexican anytime you please. Excellent. I like that. This is my favourite of all of the questions. What did your family think of the name that you use in Avenged Sevenfold? So when you first told them, I am Sinister Gates, <laughs> what did they say? I think my dad thought it was cool. Love I, that. I've never heard anything from my mom. I mean, my dad was our biggest fan. He's always been our biggest fan. Love it. Um, good enough for maybe, Slash. It's good enough for you. Maybe next to Matt's dad. Last question. Which song would you make your family anthem? Fuck, man. Um, hard, it's really, really hard to say. Uh, it's got to be something off of Born to Die by Lana Del Rey. I mean, that epitomizes my romance with my wife. If we had one album that that was us, that's the record. I'm glad it's that and not ultraviolence. So there you go. <laughs> <laughs> no, broke my heart when she was, uh, yeah, so, so, so broken on that record. Yeah. Poor thing. Yeah. Poor thing. My wife and I both wanted to bring her into our home and comfort her and take good care of her at that moment. I'd comfort her. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. 